Hello, and welcome to the USF Emergency Medicine Podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking about pediatric asthma and pediatric advanced life support. We'll start by talking about asthma. Asthma is the most common chronic disease in childhood. In terms of epidemiology, the prevalence of asthma in the United States is on the rise, and despite the improvement in therapy, the incidence of asthma-related deaths is also increasing. Asthma itself is a chronic inflammatory disorder of the airways. It is characterized by increased responsiveness of the trachea and bronchi to a variety of stimuli called triggers and is manifested by partially or completely reversible airway obstruction, increased mucus production, and airway edema. There are many triggers that can precipitate an asthma attack. Viral respiratory infections are the most frequent trigger in children under two years old with respiratory syncytial virus or RSV being particularly common in preschool aged children and mycoplasma being more common in school aged children. Other triggers are allergens like dust mites, cockroaches, pollen, animal dander, exercise, inhaled irritants like cigarette smoke, air pollution, smoke from burning wood or fumes, medications such as aspirin, NSAIDs or beta blockers, food additives like MSG, sulfites and some dyes, GERD, cold exposure and changes in humidity, and endocrine factors such as menses, pregnancy, or thyroid disease. The cornerstone of the clinical presentation of asthma is wheezing. Physical examination will often reveal signs of respiratory distress such as intercostal retractions, nasal flaring, prolonged expiratory phase, and cyanosis, as well as tachycardia, tachypnea, and wheezing which may be absent in the tight asthmatic who is not moving much air. In some patients, however, only a chronic cough or decreased exercise tolerance is present. It must be stressed that it is important to evaluate vital signs and lung sounds before and after each therapeutic intervention to see if they are improving or worsening and to determine if any signs of toxicity develop. And for the evaluation of asthma, oxygen saturation should always be assessed with pulse oximetry A low saturation, such as less than 90%, especially at initial triage, is a poor prognostic indicator which suggests a need for prolonged observation or admission. Bedside pulmonary function testing, such as peak expiratory flow rate or forced expiratory tidal volume, can be obtained. However, they are on a par with your physical examination, so don't feel bad if you cannot do them or do not have the capability to perform them. And now for the question of the chest x-ray. You do not have to get these in all asthma patients. However, it should be obtained in patients presenting with their first episode of wheezing to exclude other pathology and those who may have complications such as atelectasis, pneumothorax, pneumonia, or pneumomediastinum. The typical chest x-ray in a patient with asthma will show hyperinflation and flattened diaphragms. Once you have assessed the patient, it is helpful to classify the asthma severity in terms of mild, moderate, or severe exacerbations. Patients having mild exacerbations speak in complete sentences, have only end expiratory wheezing, and are generally not using accessory muscles. Patients with moderate exacerbations speak in phrases, have wheezing throughout exhalation, and commonly use accessory muscles. Patients with severe exacerbations speak only in one or two words, commonly have loud wheezing throughout inhalation and exhalation, and are using accessory muscles extensively. The exacerbation severity, when combined with the response to treatment measures, 
is helpful in determining the need for hospital admission. Now there are a few very important risk factors for death from asthma and it's important to go over those. Some of those risk factors are past medical history of severe exacerbations such as prior intubation or ICU admission for asthma or those that are in abrupt onset. More than two hospitalizations or more than three emergency department visits in the past year. Hospitalization or emergency department treatment in the last 30 days current or recent use of oral steroids or the use of more than two canisters of albuterol. And now moving on to the management of asthma. The initial treatment of choice is aerosolized therapy with a beta adrenergic agonist. It is associated with fewer systemic adverse effects and better dilation than parenteral therapy and it obviates the need for painful injections. Albuterol is going to be the preferred agent Administer 0.15 milligrams per kilogram with a maximum dose of 5 milligrams and a minimum dose of 2.5 milligrams and 2 to 3 milliliters of normal saline every 20 minutes for 3 doses and then up to 0.3 milligram per kilogram up to 10 milligrams every 1 to 4 hours as needed. Continuous NEBS using 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour with a maximum of 15 milligrams per hour should be considered for children who do not respond to the previous regimen or who present with severe respiratory findings. Albuterol administered as an MDI or meter dose inhaler is just as effective as albuterol NEBS. The dose is 4 to 8 puffs every 20 minutes for up to 4 hours and then 4 to 8 puffs every 1 to 4 hours as needed. Parenteral adrenergic therapy is a useful adjuvant to ongoing aerosolized therapy in those who are very sick and the very young who may not be able to provide the necessary inspiratory effort or cooperate effectively. These two alternatives include epinephrine and terbutaline. Epinephrine is given in its 1 to 1000 solution 0.01 milligram per kilogram IM every 20 minutes for up to three doses. This is very similar to the anaphylaxis dose. Terbutaline may be preferred because of its beta-2 selectivity and its dose is 0.005 to 0.01 milligrams per kilogram IM every 20 minutes for up to three doses. Steroids are very useful in treating the inflammatory aspect of asthma. When administered early, they prevent progression of the illness and decrease the rate of relapse. Administer steroids to all patients with moderate to severe exacerbations and to those patients with mild exacerbations who do not clear completely with initial beta-2 agonist therapy or have recently discontinued oral steroids. There are many different types of steroids you can give and there is no advantage to any of them or their routes of administration. It is important to remember though that patients who receive prednisone or prednisolone in the ED and are subsequently discharged should be continued on oral steroids for five days. Patients who receive dexamethasone should receive one additional dose one to two days after discharge. Ipotropium bromide can also be useful. It is an inhaled anticholinergic agent that when used in combination with a beta adrenergic agonist exhibits an additive effect by reducing bronchoconstriction and decreasing mucus production. In patients with severe exacerbations, ipotropium bromide should be added to the first three beta agonist treatments. 
So for the first three treatments of someone who is in a severe exacerbation, you should give them three duonabs. Magnesium is something that can also be given to those in severe exacerbation or those that do not respond to albuterol. The dose here is 25 to 75 milligrams per kilogram over 20 minutes IV. And if you're at the very end of your rope and you need to intubate a child with asthma, ketamine is the agent of choice for patients in respiratory failure for the induction agent because of its bronchodilatory effects. And very briefly for ventilator management, you wanna decrease the respiratory rate, have relative hypercarbia, and increase the amount of time the patient has to exhale. If at the very end, none of these work, you need a consult anesthesiology stats to get these patients to the operating room and breathing an inhaled anesthetic. And now we'll move on to talk about pediatric cardiac arrest. Before we get there, however, it should be noted that in the pediatric bradycardia with a pulse algorithm, that if there are signs of shock, such as hypotension, acutely altered mental status, or signs of shock with a heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute, you start CPR. Again, in kids, if they have signs of shock or are unstable and have a heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute, you start CPR. Now to move on to the cardiac arrest algorithm. The pediatric cardiac arrest algorithm is very similar to the adult cardiac arrest algorithm. The first breakpoint comes when you put the patient on the monitor and you assess their rhythm. Is it shockable or is it not shockable? The shockable rhythms are ventricular fibrillation and pulseless ventricular tachycardia. The non-shockable rhythms are a systole and PEA. Regardless of whatever rhythm you have, you're going to start CPR. For CPR quality, you push hard and you push fast, roughly 100 to 120 times per minute and allow complete chest recoil. Seek to minimize interruptions and compressions, avoid excess ventilation, rotate compressors early and often, and if no advanced airway, do 15 to two compression to ventilation ratio. Now for the shockable rhythm algorithm, you start CPR, you assess the rhythm. It is either V-fib or pulseless VTAC. Your first step is the shock the patient. The first shock is two joules per kilogram. The second shock is four joules per kilogram. And subsequent shocks should be greater than four joules per kilogram with a maximum dose of 10 joules per kilogram or the adult dose. Additionally, it is important to know that these are defibrillation shocks there is no synchronization when the patient does not have a pulse. Immediately after the shock, you do CPR for two minutes while you obtain IO or IV access. After those two minutes, you reassess the rhythm. If it is shockable, you shock it, you defibrillate it. And as soon as the energy is delivered, you get back on the chest and start CPR for another two minutes. After the second defibrillation, you can give epinephrine at three to five minute intervals. Pediatric cardiac arrest epidose is 0.01 milligrams per kilogram of the 1 to 10,000 concentration. Continue the CPR for two minutes and reassess the rhythm. If it is shockable, you defibrillate it. Then you start CPR again. After this third rhythm assessment, it is appropriate to give amiodarone or lidocaine and treat reversible causes. The pediatric amiodarone dose is five milligrams per kilogram bolus during cardiac arrest, 
you may repeat this up to two times for refractory V-fib or pulseless VTAC. The pediatric lidocaine dose consists of an initial bolus followed by a maintenance strip. The initial bolus is one milligram per kilogram and the maintenance strip is 20 to 50 micrograms per kilogram per minute. You may repeat a one milligram per kilogram bolus dose of lidocaine 15 minutes or more after the initial bolus dose was given. At this point, the shockable rhythm algorithm circles back around. There is going to be an overarching pattern of rhythm assessment, shock, CPR for two minutes, rhythm assessment, shock, CPR for two minutes. The asystole and PEA portion of this algorithm starts out as all cardiac arrest care does with CPR and a rhythm assessment. Here you're going to see asystole and PEA. There is no indication for shock, so you're going to jump right into the first two minutes of CPR. You're going to get IO or IV access and start epinephrine every three to five minutes. Every two minutes, you're going to stop CPR and check the rhythm. If it is ventricular fibrillation or pulseless ventricular tachycardia, you defibrillate it. If not, you continue with CPR and rhythm checks every two minutes. Throughout the cardiac arrest algorithm, after you have obtained IV or IO access and have assessed the rhythm and shocked if necessary, it is always appropriate to consider an advanced airway. The formula for a cuffed ET tube is the age of the patient divided by four plus 3.5. And at the very end of this episode, I'll go over the reversible causes of asystole or PEA. They are the H's and T's, and here they are hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ion, like acidosis, hypoglycemia, hypo or hyperkalemia, and hypothermia. The T's are tension pneumothorax, cardiac tamponade, toxins, pulmonary thrombosis, and coronary thrombosis. However, I think the H's and T's are a little bit cumbersome, so I think of it in my own way. My way is to think of the substrate, the metabolic, the obstruction of the return of venous flow, and MI. So for the substrate causes, it's lack of glucose, lack of oxygen, or lack of blood volume. For the metabolic causes, you're gonna have acidosis, or high or low K. For the obstruction of return of venous flow causes, you're gonna have tension physiology, or PE. Under tension physiology, there's pericardial tamponade and tension pneumothorax. And for the final cause, it's MI. And that's all I have for you this time. Thank you for listening to this episode.